You may be seated. Hope that song is the prayer of your heart today. Follow the Lord wherever he may lead and direct you in your life. If you're a guest this morning, if this is your first time with us here at Grace Baptist Church, we want to kindly thank you for being with us this morning. And there's a QR code that's printed on a, a cardboard card in front of you. And looks like the one on the screen behind me. I would ask if you would be so kind to take a few moments at some point in our service today, or before you leave at least, to use this to fill out our guest card. And uh, just a couple of questions that you can answer for us, and we would love to be able to follow up with you and get to know you a little bit better. If you are not a first-time guest, you've been here many times, but you have, you have questions about our ministry, you can use the same QR code, and you can contact us through the same guest card, and that'll... Uh, get to us, and we'll make sure that we follow up with you and answer any questions, or however we may, may be able to help you uh, here uh, as you're a part of our ministry. We're certainly thankful for that. I do want to mention that, as Pastor Brian said in the welcome video, we are having a uh, barbecue today on campus. We will be eating indoors, if that is a concern uh, for you. We will be meeting in the Hershenhan Center, the Fellowship Hall, which is off to my left. Uh, they are already cooking and preparing for that. So it is a cookout, but it's going to be indoors, and so if you're concerned about uh, the weather for any reason, we will be inside. If you are a guest, and this is your first time with us, and you didn't know about the meal, sorry, I don't know what to tell you, you have to know, you are, we would love to have you, that's all joking aside, always like the a little humor in there from time to time. Uh, we would love to have you stay, if you didn't come prepared to stay, and, and you're unsure, uh, please, we would love to have you stick around and join us for lunch. And um, it's free, of charge to everybody, and so please come on and, and um, hey, go ahead and text your friends, invite them, the family, to come too. We'd love to have everybody. We are pressing on. Last few weeks in our study of uh, the life of David, we've been working through this over the last uh, few weeks now, a few months actually, we're going to be wrapping that up here in the next two or three Sundays. Um, but before we jump into our text today, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at a psalm, actually. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to study your word together today, and we pray that as we look into your word today, that you would use this as an opportunity to open our own hearts and lives to the truths that we will find here in the events that are um, very complex and very uh, troubling in so many ways in the life of David, and we just pray that you would use this time together this morning to draw us closer to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be looking at Psalm 3, the third psalm. If you could find the third psalm in your copy of Scripture there, we're going to be looking at that. We are going to do a little gymnastics today. Uh, we are going to be going back and forth between the psalm and 2 Samuel, and uh, we're going to be doing that, uh, looking at some text back in 2 Samuel. I'll explain why in just a moment. So if you could put your finger around like chapter 14 of 2 Samuel and then the third Psalm, we are going to be flipping again back and forth to those. You know, we often think about success, at least I, th I do, maybe you don't, but I often think about success, whatever that, whatever that definition is for you, that once you reach a period of success in your life, that all the problems of this world are going to fade away and going to enjoy Kind of a period of time of just peace and quiet and tranquility. And yet, I would suggest to you that in, in some ways, I've, I've said this for a long time, that in some ways, success is sort of a curse in some regards. In the sense 
With success comes new temptations that maybe you never had access to before or anything that you were able to do. You didn't have the opportunity. You didn't have the money. You didn't have the, you know, the opportunity to uh, fall into certain temptations, which we have clearly seen in the life of David. But it also, success also opens you and your life up for brand new trials and tribulations. And that is certainly true in the life of David. Some of them self-inflicted, no doubt. But as a result of some of his decisions, we are going to see today that there was a very difficult time in David's life that followed the events of Tamar and Amnon. If you were here for that message last week, after Amnon uh, rapes his half-sister, that there is now conflict between Amnon and who was a son of David and also his brother Absalom. Absalom kills Amnon after a couple of years of waiting for the opportunity to do so. And clearly that creates some tension within David's family, as Nathan had already promised him after his sin with Bathsheba. We knew that this was coming his way. But now Absalom actually, after he kills his own brother, he actually puts himself in sort of a, an exile of the, on his own. So he is out of David's uh, presence. He is living in a place called Gersher, and he is removed from what is happening in Jerusalem. But he is eventually going to come back to Jerusalem. We'll get into that a little bit in, mo- in a moment. And he is going to incite a conspiracy against his own father. And it is in this context that Psalm 3 is written. In fact, Psalm 3 is interesting for many, many reasons. We won't get into all the details of the psalm necessarily, but we got several firsts that happen in this psalm. The first, 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 if I could say it that way, is this is the first psalm to have a heading over it. And this heading tells us specifically the historical context in which this psalm was written by David. Notice the heading. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. David is on the run for his life. Why? Because his own son is trying to overthrow his government and take his place as king over all of Israel. Now, with Amnon dead, by the way, Absalom would be the next person in line to be king. But I want you to read with me. We're going to read the entire psalm, and then we're going to look at it in four parts. But I want you to read the entire psalm with me. Notice verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Watch that word many, by the way. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the, on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. 
In so many regards, Scripture is given to us to speak to us, to direct us, to instruct us. But not only is the Psalms given to speak to us, in many regards, the Psalms often speak for us. And Psalm 3, in a sense, is speaking for us. It is expressing the heartaches that we experience in this world. What is interesting about the psalm, by the way, is this is given in a very historical, historically specific context. And yet David mentions nothing specific about what is happening in his life right now. This psalm is so general that it can fit each and every one of the circumstances and trialing trials and, and difficult circumstances in our lives. By the way, psalms are a song. Not only is this the first psalm to have a heading, it's the first time that we see the word psalm used comes from the Hebrew word mitzmauer, which means a melody or to pluck with strings. A psalm is a song that is sung to the accompaniment, accompaniment of stringed instruments. And so David here is writing this psalm. He is writing this song while he is, while he is running from his son. And he has some very strong words that he uses in this psalm. So today we're going to look at four practices in times of trial that we see in the psalm. And again, we're going to flip back and look at the specifics of the history of this, but I want us to look at this in four different sections. Number one, David acknowledges the problem. He acknowledges his predicament. Again, in verse, verses one and two of this psalm, notice the word many. David is facing one of the most substantial trials of his life, a conspiracy, a rebellion at the hands of his own son. Now, conflict is never fun, but conflict within your family creates even more difficult problems. How many of you live in a family that is problem-free, conflict-free, no arguments, no debates? Nobody does, right? But we probably haven't been chased by our family members to have us put to death, I hope, I pray not. And notice he says that David here has many foes. There are many foes rising against him. The word foes is interesting. It comes from a Hebrew word, tasar, which means at its root, it means narrow or constriction. It's an interesting word because when it means adversary, an enemy, oppressor, the picture is that the space around David is closing in. He is hemmed in. He is boxed in. He has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. He is caught. He is trapped on all sides. His enemies are coming at him to kill him. He's hemmed in. There's growing opposition to David and his kingship. The enemies, by the way, as we've mentioned before, for Saul, the previous king, those were from the Philistines or from some rival nation. But David is facing adversity from Israelites, from people of his own country. As Nathan had promised, he would face family conflict as a result of his sin for Bathsheba. And now uh, David is experiencing this in his own life. So keep your finger in Psalm 3. And I want you to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 14. And we're going to read a couple of sections about the historical background of who these foes are. Who is it specifically that is coming after David? Well, Absalom is number one on this list. He is the one leading this 
insurrection. In fact, at the end of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, we are told in verse 37 that Absalom fled. And he runs after he kills his brother. He fled and went to Geshur, and he was there for three years. No contact with David, no contact with his family. He is out now living in isolation. Now, we won't read the opening verses of chapter 14 all the way down through the entire chapter of chapter 14. But basically, Joab creates this context where David is confronted to bring Absalom back. And in verse 25 of chapter 14, we now begin to get to know Absalom a little bit better of who this man is. Notice 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Oh boy, here we go again. Another handsome, attractive, beautiful person. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut, he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. He's handsome. He's tall. He's smart. He's a smooth talker. And let's not overlook the fact he has great hair. Wow. When I was a kid, I used to dream of having wonderful hair. My hair grows this way. It just gets bigger, not longer. But Absalom was known for his physical appearance. You know, I was thinking about Absalom from this regard. He's kind of the person our culture would look to to emulate. Like, here's a really great guy. He's good-looking, charm, the hair. He's certainly a guy that would, from our standards, be a person to emulate and to admire and to look up to. And yet the text tells us otherwise, which we'll get to in a moment. In verse 27, we have this, uh, they have this comment. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, named after his sister, who was also a beautiful woman. And we are told here that she also is a beautiful woman. So Absalom, verse 28, lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Okay, so he has already spent two years in Gusher after he killed his brother in isolation. Finally, through Joab's kind of manipulation a little bit, Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem and one of the problems, or one of the stipulations, rather, of him coming back to Jerusalem is David says, he is to have no contact with me. He cannot come to the palace. He cannot come into my presence. He may not come into my presence. And so this goes on now. For two years, there is no contact between David and his son Absalom. Verse 29, then Absalom sent to Joab and sent to send them to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. If Joab won't listen to me, if he won't come into my presence and get me a hearing before the king, burn his field down. 
And so Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house. And he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you back to the king to ask, why have I come from Gersher? It would have been better for me to stay there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the king's presence. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he, su- and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on, the face, uh, on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Now there is this reunion. He now is coming back into David's graces. There is a reintroduction, if you will, between father and son. But notice Absalom's next step. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no one designated by the king to hear you. The king doesn't care about you or your problems. There's nobody for the king has designated to listen to you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This conspiracy, this insurrection, doesn't start with weapons and spears and armament. It starts with manipulation. It starts with winning the hearts of people. You know, the king doesn't really care about you. If he did, he would have a place of judgment for you to go to. But bring your request to me. Make me judge because I truly care about you. And over time, Absalom successfully wins over the people of Israel. Notice verse 7. And at the end of four years, this goes on for four years. And Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow for which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Let me go fulfill a religious commitment that I have made in Hebron. So the king lets him go, lets him go down to Hebron to do this. Verse 12, and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel. Remember him? Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather he is a wise man a person of great counsel to david throughout his kingship and ahithophel now is called for by absalom david's counselor from the city of gilo and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with absalom kept increasing wow right under his father's nose right behind his father's back Absalom, this tall, handsome guy with substantially wonderful hair, winning winning the people's heart one by one. 
And now he calls Ahithophel and come to me, join my group, join my conspiracy, join my group that is going to rebel against my father. Now notice what happens in verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him and the king left ten concubines to keep the house And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. David now, in verse 12, has to run for his life. The insurrection has begun. What had begun as a covert operation by Absalom to win the hearts of the people has now grown to a full-scale rebellion against David. Now, we remember back... To 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, when we heard these words, Now the king lived in the house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. And David now, his biggest problem, again, comes from his own family. Now go back to Psalm chapter 3 for a moment, and notice verse 2, as David is crying out, The enemies that are rising against me, the many enemies, his son, Ahithophel, Thousands of people, Israelites, that Absalom has successfully won over to his side. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him to God. Now, salvation here can be used in a couple of different ways. It can be a reference to spiritual salvation, or it can be used to reference physical well-being. Given the wording here, it seems that there is an emphasis on the spiritual side, but it doesn't negate the physical side of David's protection as well. And we notice here that David's enemies are taunting him, saying things to the effect, David, you are so horrible, you are so terrible that there is nothing that God can do to save you, to rescue you. You're a lost cause. Now, let's pause there in the psalm and pause there in the background of this psalm and ask ourselves this question. When you are hemmed in by the world, how do you respond? How do you respond when the world is coming in at you and it feels like everyone is against you? It feels like the world is out to get you. When David found himself in this tight spot, rather than throwing his hands up in despair, he cries out to the Lord. The odds were against him. The people were against him. His son was against him. Ahithophel, one of his most trusted counselors, is against him. The odds were not in David's favor. And so often we misplace our trust. And rather than bringing our request to God, one of the reasons I love the Psalter is because when you think about the fact that this was a song that was to be sung. By the way, we don't know what the song sounded like. We don't have the sound by God's grace. We don't know what it sounded like. But we have the words. 
And we can feel the desperation. How many are my foes? How many are rising against me? They're saying there is no hope for you, David. I don't know what that song sounded like. But I would imagine that it is a, an emotional song. It is a song that is crying out to God. And he's pleading with God and sharing his heart and his fear and his distress to God. Again, I ask you, when you're hemmed in by the world, where do you run? Where do you go? You see, our lives are shaped by those with whom we cry out to in our time of need, in our times of despair. God never commands his children to swallow their cries, to swallow their fear. He never tells us to bottle up our tears of our heart. Instead, he pleads with us, come unto me, you who are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. And so David is pleading to God, pleading with his heart, God, you know my circumstance, and it is not pretty. It is not good. I'm in a very bad predicament. But notice now David, in the next couple of verses, prays and seeks after God's protection. That is our kind of next phase, is seeking God's protection. Notice the contrast, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. By the, word, by the way, the word selah there is, seems to be a musical term. It's not meant to be read. It was simply there as an instruction for the musicians. But in the crucible of this trial, David now turns his attention to God, the source of his protection, the source of his strength. And he describes God as an impenetrable defense, a shield. It was like those that were used on a battlefield, those that were surrounding David, those that wanted to kill him and to overthrow him. He says, God, you are the ultimate protector. You are my shield. You're the one who is protecting me. And he would thwart those who sought to destroy David. I like this phrase when he says that not only was God his shield, but he also was the lifter of his head. I love that. It's a poetic picture of David trusting God to restore his dignity, to give him victory over his enemies, and to restore his life, and to restore his kingdom. Lift my head, O Lord. Encourage me. Strengthen me. Restore me, God. A few psalms later, in Psalm 9, verse 13, David wrote this, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. When David's life was crumbling around him, his confidence in God was unshaken. He was undeterred. Because of David's sin, we know, he was being held accountable for that. Nathan had promised that these events would happen. Nonetheless, David is pleading with God in verse 4. He's crying out out loud, God, hear me from my holy hill, from your holy hill, so that you will answer my prayer. It's, we don't have time for sake of time. I won't read this to you. But in 2 Samuel 15, when David is running from 
from the from the king or from Absalom rather, and they are fleeing Jerusalem. There is a discussion about what to do with the Ark of the Covenant, and some wanted to bring the Ark along with David, but David says to leave it back in Jerusalem. So when he talks about praying toward the holy hill, is this place where David was praying toward, knowing that God would hear him. By the way, in the midst of this, we are given, and, and you don't have to turn there, but listen to 2 Samuel 15, verses 30 and 31 for a moment, of what was taking place in David's life while he's running for his life. Listen to these couple of verses. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David is broken. He's weeping. And yet he's still resting and having confidence in God and praying, Lord, Use your spirit to work this out for your glory. Notice part three of this psalm is David now rests in the power of God. Notice verse five. I lay down and slept. How many of you sleep well when you're in the midst of a trial? How many hours of sleep have you lost worrying over things that are far less substantial than this? And yet at the midst of this, David says that he was able to rest. He was able to sleep. He was able to enjoy the peace of God that God had given to him and had granted to him. And David lays down and rests. I, 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 I used to be, the older I get, this isn't so much true, but I used to be able to sleep anywhere, anytime. Just fall asleep. But David, I don't know as if with spears coming at me, armies of people coming at me, that I would be able to lay down and rest. And yet David sleeps. And then he says, I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. God brought me through the night. God sustained my life. And then he says in the next verse, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me, who are all around me. David refused to be afraid. Now, I want you to go back to 2 Samuel again. I want you to go to chapter 16 this time. And I want you to listen to several verses that I want to read for you to give you a little more background as to what is taking place as David is writing this psalm. I'm in 2 Samuel 16, verse 15. We begin reading there. It says this, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Hephaphel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. Long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Why didn't you follow David? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should, I, should it not be his son? 
As I have served your father, so will I serve you. Hushai is a double agent, by the way. We don't have time to get into all the politics of this, but Hushai is still loyal to David. This man is putting his own life at risk, and he is now coming in to be a counselor of Absalom. And Absalom extends trust to him. Verse uh, 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give me your counsel on what I should do. I'm not going to read all the verses, but let me just summarize it for you. Ahithophel, trusted advisor. Absalom says, Ahithophel, what should we do about David? And the gist of Ahithophel's counsel is, go get him. He's on the run. Attack. And attack now. Hunt him down and kill him. He's yours for the taking. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with me and he will flee and I will strike down the only king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. Leave this to me. Notice verse 6. Then Absalom said, call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. Notice, remember what David prayed when he was running. Confuse the counsel of Ahithophel. Confuse his counsel. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said, uh, he said to him, thus said Ahithophel, what shall we do? This is what he says, if not you speak. And Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given you is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty. And they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Some of you mentioned my article about the big bear I saw on vacation. Fantastic. Highlight of my trip. Besides, your father is an expert at war. He will not spend the night with his people. Let me cut to the chase. Hushai says, no, 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 no. Don't go get him now. Amass a whole bunch of people. Build up a big army. This is going to take what? This is going to take time. Ahithophel is wrong on this. Don't go after him tonight. Build an army and then go after him. Jump down to verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. I love the next part of this verse. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring him upon Absalom. God was still protecting David. God was still working all of this out for David's good and protection and uses Hushai and his advice and his counsel that Absalom follows and it will be to his destruction. In the storms of life, how often do we get anxious and not rest in God's gracious sovereignty the way David does in, in this account of Psalm 3? This last part of the psalm, David prays for deliverance. I won't reread the verses, but David prayed that God would crush his enemies. He was motivated by righteous indignation. We know that in 2 Samuel 17, Ahithophel saw that the council was not followed. And he saddled his donkey, he went off home into his own city. He set the house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. 
So in 2 Samuel 17, 23, Ahithophel, his first enemy, one of his enemies, is, is killed. He takes his own life because of what is happening around him. And let's look at one more passage from 2 Samuel chapter 18 and watch what happens to Absalom. So David is praying, God, please deliver me from my enemies. Ahithophel takes his own life. And notice what happens at the end of chapter 17 of 2 Samuel, excuse me, chapter 18, in verse 6, we find this. So the army went into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and their loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. I don't know what happened there, but some of them were simply killed by the elements in the forest, whether that was traps set up by David's men or just the, uh, whatever was in the forest. They died just trying, to stay, just trying to avoid the conflict. Verse 9, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule under him went on. His beautiful hair is going to be his undoing. See the long, beautiful hair that I wanted as a kid? It may have been to my detriment. He's hanging from a tree. By the way, David had already said, we didn't read this part because we've read a lot. David had already said, when you find Absalom, nobody touches him. Nobody harms Absalom. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging on an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Another one of David's children, dead. Amnon, the son who was the next in line to be king after David, murdered by Absalom. Because of his rape of Tamar. Absalom killed on the battlefield because of his conspiracy against his father. Now, one of the beauties of this text that I find particularly challenging and interesting to me is what happens at the end of this account. Jump down to verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. 
And the watchman called to the gate and he said, see another man running. And the king said, he also brings news from the battlefield. Jump down to verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all of those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that of the young man. What would your heart be as a father at this moment? Your own son tried to kill you. Not only that, your own son swooed away the hearts of the people that God has given to you and amassed an army of thousands of people to kill you, including some of your own trusted counselors. What would you do? Notice what happens. As David is hearing this news of his son, it tells us in verse 33, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I don't know how you react to those verses, but here's how I react. If David is a man with a heart after God, the tenderness of David's brokenness over the death of his son who had sinned egregiously against them. I can't help but hear these words, not in, the, not in the language of David, but in our heavenly fathers, my son, my son, I love you. Despite your failures, despite your weakness, Despite the times that you reject and despite the times that you rebel, you are my son, you are my daughter, I love you. Now, as a human father, I understand David's emotion. There's nothing my children could do to make, them, to make me stop loving them, nothing. But the heart of David, as it bleeds for his lost child, I would suggest to you, reflects the heart of your heavenly father. When we rebel, and we reject, and we don't obey, it's easy to be hard on Absalom. To say, what kind of person does this to his father? And yet, we rebel against our heavenly father practically every day. And yet his grace, his mercy, is available to all of us. David was far from perfect. What suggests most of this is happening as a result of David's sin. Carnage. Dead people. Dead children. We didn't have time to get into this, but father and son that hadn't spoken for years. 
And yet at the moment of his death, David is broken for his son. I love what, I read this this week, Charles Spurgeon, man who was just so wonderful with words in so many ways. He said, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. It's the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. And yet in this text, we are reminded God never abandoned David. God delivered David miraculously. And God was always his shield, his protector. I don't know about you, but I find whenever I try to manage adversity in my own strength, I'm easily discouraged, easily defeated. But David's Psalm, Psalm 3, reminds us that God will never turn a deaf ear to your cries. And when we face times of trial, how we respond to these times of trial make all of the difference. And David went before his heavenly father, and David brought his requests before him. I, I don't know, probably none of us, our life verse. I can't imagine maybe for any of us is Psalm 3 when David says, break the teeth of those that oppose me. You probably don't say that. But there are times that, if we're honest, there's such hurt and heartache against people that betray us and hurt us. People that lie, manipulate. And yet David, at the end of it, my son, I wish it had been me. The grace and mercy of our father seen in David's life. In times of adverse circumstances, the best you can do is to call out to your heavenly father. Because he listens, he hears. And rest in his sovereign care because he is truly the source of peace and the source of deliverance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together this morning to look at a lot of verses of Scripture and probably much more that we could yet say. And yet we are reminded of your care for us, even in the instance of David, that you were protecting him. and You saw him through a, a very horrible set of circumstances in his life. God, we thank you, I thank you, for just the response of David's loss when he realized his son was gone, that despite the rebellion, despite all that had happened, he loved him. And God, it's a picture of your love for us, that despite our failures, despite our own rebellious hearts at times, that you still love each and every one of us. So God, I pray that as we close, that if there is one here today that maybe has never trusted in Christ personally for salvation, that today may be a day that they would see that they can't save themselves. They would seek help in finding how they can truly enter into a relationship with you. There may be some believers here today that are broken by their circumstances.